and welcome to the 12th edition of the ARC Audiobook Club. Today we'll be discussing Nell Zink's first novel, The Wall Creeper. It's a short book that contains a whole bunch of things like birds, sex, philosophy, death, humour, ecology, power, privilege, feminism, love. And to talk about them, we have today Sarah Ominick. Hi. Giovanna Alessandro. Hi. Amelia Banyan. Hello. And I'm Megan Holt. Does anyone want to talk about what this book is about? I can give a recap. That'd be great. It starts out with a miscarriage and they adopt the bird. Mm-hmm. But then it goes flashback to when they met each other, which was in Pennsylvania in the 2000 zeros probably. They date for about three weeks and then they move to Switzerland to Bern. And here they live for about three years and then they move to Berlin. And I think that's the geographical position of the book anyway. <laughs> but a lot of stuff happens in it. She starts out by having a miscarriage. The book starts out like this, in fact. I was looking at the map when Steven Swift hit the rock and occasioned the miscarriage. Mm. And what is the book about? I don't even know. It's, I think, in a subtle way, it's a great book on feminism yeah. without ever explaining itself or revealing itself mm. as mm. Uh, having any motive or agenda. Well, she always, well, not always, but whenever the character, Tiffany, um, who was also the narrator, when she mentions sem- feminism, it's always as an other from her. Um, she gets how it relates, she gets that it does relate to uh, her position in some way, but she doesn't feel um, connected to it in a, as if it's not a part of her life, it's not a part of her motivations in, in many ways. No, and the great thing about it is that this character, the main character, Tiffany, uh, must be like 25 when the book starts out, but the gaze which she bestows on the world is like clinically has everything removed, it seems. It's like mm. there's no society inside that character, mm. Um, mm. and her view on the world sort of feels like a prima vista always because some things upset her and she wonders about some things and she's sort of surprised by some things where you go, like, What? The, <laughs> where have you been? Yeah. Have you been among other people? Have you lived yeah. in a society? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is fun because it creates this new perspective on things in a sort of mellow way yeah. while being really, really fun and entertaining at the same time. And there are some great dialogues. I think the book is carried by the dialogue, which Nell Singh does wonderfully. <laughs> I think also that, 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 that um, distance that you're talking about it speaks to the kind of expat experience of uh, her character like she enters she's entering to living in Switzerland with not very good German so she's not connected to that society she's dropped into it and it only over time does begin to but it's with everything it's also when she has sex and when she talks to her husband who's her fellow expatriate mm. who's mm. American as mm. well and when she goes to clubs and like mm. she wonders about and thinks about like she has these statements when she sees things yeah. she will describe them in her head, like what you see, but she thinks about them in words, yeah. which I know is a technical thing for writing a book that you have <laughs> to do that. But still, no. there are many ways to do that. Yeah, and it's words presented as words. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, is it significant perhaps that the book also starts off with not just a miscarriage but also a head injury? <laughs> Maybe, but like I mean, it goes <clears throat> back the book, and she still seems as weird as before the miscarriage. Mm. But it's, like, it's her contemporary recollection, though. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The style of it is unlike anything else I've really read before. It's maybe most similar to something like Tao Lin. Yeah, maybe, because it's so unsentimental. And mm. 
she can describe that she was heartbroken after heartbroken after the miscarriage. Mm. But but that's it. And then she moves on to something else, and she takes the piss out of everything. She and there is no political correctness. Yeah, like she will joke about um, date rape and the whole student campus thing, where um, date rape is actually an issue. And and she is so sarcastic. Yeah. She's terribly removed, like ironically removed from reality. Like that's the humor. Everything is at such a distance. Mm. But I also found the humor to be incredibly smart, but also smart in the way where when I was reading these sentences, she kind of removes, she removes all the thought that went into making these sentences. Like she goes from A to C in like two sentences where you have to figure out mm. why is this funny? Yeah. Like she has um, references, um, to people and places and, and things and history yeah. that either you have to know or you just have to be able to follow the logics of her of her thought and her humor because many times I had to read over passages I could see that they were hilarious but I actually didn't know exactly <laughs> why no oh, what it meant exactly exactly so I had to I really I couldn't read this book without really 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 paying attention to what I was reading yeah I mean you can it's yeah. a book where you can read it like that but then you'll just lose 70% of it yeah yeah, and more about like the style and structure. I think she has this way of making a passage on a page where she describes things, and then she'll summarize it in some sort of uh, comparison mm -hmm. that is where she compares it to something completely different that <coughs> turns it upside down or makes it into something completely different mm. than what she had just described. And I do not have an example of that, we'll but I think it's really great. Yeah. <laughs> but what I couldn't determine was what genre is this book <laughs> i thought about it and <laughs> I, I i have no idea how to genre determine it i i like the term that um it was used as a critique of zadie smith and david foster wallace in like the early 2000s which is um uh, hysterical realism <laughs> that seems hysterical correct realism yeah where they like pay attention to all the smallest details yeah that's what they yeah. small extreme. details but also like with extremely unlikely yeah. things like happening at the same time and then and this is kind of like closer maybe to the realism thing but the way that she perceives it is perhaps in this sort of there's a hysterical pace to it which I didn't really get when I, I, I when I started reading it, I didn't understand how to read this book because it mm. was because of that thing of like it's skipping over information or uh, not not quite following along and then when I saw her read it I was like oh okay it is as frantic as that and you read it incredibly you read it incredibly fast mm then there starts to become a rhythm that comes out of it. And it's a sort of rhythm of a, a kind of a, 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 like a de denied panic or something. Yeah, but she has a great language mm. and her vocabulary is fantastic and the way she structures her sentences and yep, puts them yep. together and her comparisons. And like this, it's a sort of claustrophobic universe she creates because we're inside the head of Tiffany all the time and her main character, Tiffany, is, I mean, she's crazy. Um, <laughs> she's totally unreliable and she's glossing reality over completely I mean she like sort of thinks and sees that her husband is an addict from opium from having stayed in Macedonia too long and mm. then she just cracks a joke in her head about it mm. um, and it also feels as if she's constantly aware that we are in her head as well yeah 
Yeah, so in some ways it's almost like... She feels herself being surveyed or yeah, watched. Yeah, so she's showing off while trying not to look like she's showing off. Yeah, which is, I mean, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if we should have an example of some of this language. Do you have a good example? I, well, the first, there's, there's a, I'm not sure the word wonderful is the right. There's a, there's a sex scene at the very beginning. Oh, yes. <laughs> And I don't quite about. know where to start. Maybe I'll just read the whole thing and we'll see. It's just a page long. It's right after uh, they have an, an accident on the road and she miscarries uh, this baby. It says, We kissed, but my whatever had not healed. It was hot and dry. I mean my brain. I just stood there in a state of mournful passivity while he knelt down and licked me, touching my asshole rhythmically with one finger and petting my thigh in counterpoint. I felt sad. His awkward hands reminded me of the flames round Joan of Arc at the stake, but I knew after we started to have actual sex, I would feel better. However, that was before he entered my butt with the rest of his hand followed by his penis and the metaphoric auto da fe became a thick one-to-one -one description of taking a dump. Now all my life, I had fantasized about being used sexually in every way I could think of on the spur of the respective moment. How naive I was, I said to myself. In actuality, this was like using a bedpan on the kitchen counter. I knew with certainty that pain is a euphemism even more namby-pamby than defilement. Look at Stephen. He thinks he's having sex. Smell his hand. It's touching my hair. I thought, Tiff, my friend. We shall modify a curling iron and burn this out of your brain. But I didn't say anything. I acted like in those teen feminist poems where it's state rape if he doesn't read you the Antioch College Rules chapter and verse while you're glumly failing to see rainbows. I was still struggling to dissociate myself into an out-of-body experience when Stephen came crying out like a dinosaur. <laughs> this is the best part of the book and it's on page seven. <laughs> And the rest is just such a disappointment after that. You think so? Yeah. No, okay, can I just, before we discuss that, can I read <laughs> my favorite? Okay. Which goes to show that I, this woman is also, yeah. At home in Bern, I went out to shop for food, a fun thing to do because you can stroll down the arcades buying one vegetable from each stand one evening and saw Stephen in a cafe poring over papers sitting next to a strikingly pretty girl with blonde ringlets. I started over, but when I saw she had tussled her hair with mousse to cover bald patches, I backed up and kept on down the arcade trying to find truly fresh radicchio, which is never easy. <laughs> and this image of her <laughs> about to go, ah, no, she has bald patches, it's fine, they can do without me. I, I, I think it's great. Yeah. Sarah was disappointed. I was disappointed. Why were you disappointed? I blame uh, publishing. The publishing industry <laughs> because if i hadn't had all these like high expectations of it mm. of, you know it, like it's covered in quotes like it's a brilliant masterpiece it's a work of heartbreaking and staggering genius <laughs> i would have enjoyed it i think mm. but i was expecting genius and i was met with like it's fine but i don't think it's that wonderful <laughs> and i don't even think it's that funny like i'm i smirked a few times but I think it also has something to do with the fact, like what Macon was saying that, or or Gio was saying that we can't even really determine the genre of this, or it's a completely new voice that I, for example, haven't read before. So perhaps this is also what is taking mm. people by surprise and give and making it uh, or 
making them give these, you know, this kind of praise because it just, how do you categorize this thing? It seems like people didn't know what to do with it and they said, oh, I don't understand it, it must be genius. <laughs> and that kind of irritated me. And also, like, it, I felt like she was trying to provoke me. I felt like she was talking to me like I was in the middle class. Okay, that's going to sound really bad. <laughs> like, I was, like I was this very sort of uptight type of person who mm. wants everything to be right and, oh, you know, um, adultery is bad and eco-terrorism is bad and everything's bad and I just felt like she was meeting me that she was condescending me in a mm. way and mm. I don't know she had too low expectations of you as yes the I know I was really irritated you realised that her actual audience has those uh, uh, probably meet that expectations like, I, I don't like it when they try to provoke me like oh here's something you're going to find really difficult to swallow yeah, and yeah. Like, it's not it's fine guys come on I never felt talked down to at all in fact I, this novel is growing on me um <laughs> Because she never reveals anything, and it's like everything is always can be questioned: is this good or is this wrong? Mm. And I never felt that Nell Sink had an intention behind it, because mm. none of the characters are either like uh, never either or or like black and white, and they have faults and they sort of have their merits as well and their weaknesses. And I think common for all of them is that they're very lovable. Yeah. Um, they're all very enduring, except for Olaf, he's an asshole. <laughs> but, I mean, you can't say that it's sex positive or not, or that mm. it says that, um, like, eco-tourism is good or bad, or anything, like, about birds or politics or whatever. Mm. I never felt there was one line through the book. There are some very sort of, throughout the book, a few sentences that make uh, Tiffany's or Nell Singh's political point of view quite clear, which is definitely anti-corporation, mm. mm. um, somewhat pro-environment, but of course these... these um, and, and these opinions come from Tiffany, who is super fucking unreliable <laughs> and crazy and does all this weird stuff and is in a weird relationship where it seems that they're both miserable but not necessarily miserable together miserable apart and not being able to talk about it and she jokes about it in her head and um yeah it, it seems terrible <laughs> i would not want to be tiffany but she does seem to lead what i found interesting or envy uh something I could be envious of. She does seem to kind of go wherever mm. fate takes her. I mean, she says this at some point, I realized I was no feminist because I, because I followed my husband wherever he went. And, uh, and she just kind of follows men around yeah. Europe and uh, it leads her to all these strange places and all these strange events, which she just kind of takes as they come. And I... I, I um, I found that way of life <laughs> quite interesting. That's really interesting. I think that's also the uh, yeah the, the feminist debate of this entire thing is like if I'm allowed to do what I want, but I actually have no real internal direction, and I'm always being told that means I'm letting everyone down. What do I? What does that? What do I do with that? It's not a it's not a helpful state of affairs. Tiffany is at least confused. I think. Like, to return to the point that Sarah was making about the condescension, I think I think there's some actually place between Gio's point and Sarah's point that I think that the, the complexities that it's talking about are presented as complexities, 
but there is a kind of thing of of, of saying like there's there's something that's really hard. It's kind of like really subtextual. We're going like you never knew it was this complicated, did you? <laughs> Which I think is, but I think it depends like how connected you feel to the narrator in some way. Like if you don't feel like that's resonating with you then you don't feel like you're in an in-joke together, you feel like you're being condescended to, maybe. I think that's... I don't think that there's a... I, um, Zink herself has said that she wrote this book for the purposes of sort of doing a friendly parody of Jonathan Franzen's work in Freedom, which I've not read. My preparation for this podcast has been... <laughs> I've read it. Subpar. Um, and one of her main things was, with this was saying that he doesn't get the metaphor of birds properly that he doesn't really see what they can do like his she was saying that it was just birds they fly freedom and here she was like no birds are in this really complicated natural ecosystem with all this as she puts it a lot uh, breeding and feeding which is directing everyone's ambitions and they are dressing it up in these different ways and and does anyone talk about that or how I, I said enough to make that into a thing <laughs> but you've read Freedom did yes. you see the parallels when reading this or the, the things she was addressing no but I just don't think I'm smart enough <laughs> to be honest what, what I find with Nell Sink and I've seen her in real life at Luciana Literature and I've seen twice mm. and, and also talked to her very briefly and and she just she just coats things with this irony that you have to understand mm. the multiple layers while she's saying it or writing it, or else you're just you're just lost. And mm. so, so I mean, I see it now when you say that, and she says that, but it's not something I thought about. Mm. I mean, in Freedom, there is a character who is interested in birds, and he's in a marriage that is not well. It's 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 not going very well. He starts actually. He actually now that I think about it, he actually starts an mm. NGO to protect an area where birds <laughs> exist and has an affair with the intern that yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> actually, now I'm thinking about it. These two books are very similar. <laughs> but of course, uh, what is different is that Franzen delves so deeply into his characters and really, really. Mm. like explains them and you have yeah. empathy with them and you understand their motives whereas with this it's the opposite you have no idea where their motives are coming from they don't even really have motives insofar as motives are supposed to be moral or ethical mm, right. or anything mm. like that um, so I quite like that mm. so like for I guess in the, in the Franzen thing then you, like having, I've only read the corrections but there is that quest for a big moral American story I guess and, and uh, I, I guess like the adultery in that is a is a big deal, whereas it is like as common as every other kind of daily activity in the Wall Creeper. Yes, yes, very much so. But the adultery in that is actually the fault of uh, the wife in the relationship. That's also, I guess, why Nelsink was thinking that this guy, <laughs> <laughs> this guy needs a couple of pegs taken down, despite being my literary champion. Yes, exactly. Which is a good. I like that impulse. Yeah, I do. Me too. <laughs> well, as far as I remember, in Freedom, the the, the wife does commit adultery before the yeah. husband, at least before she knows that the husband is doing it. Yeah, that's the case in the Wallpaper mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is the same book. But I do like their less affair, you know, sexual relations in this book. Yeah. Mm. And I like how Stephen and Tiffany are very in on it. They're like, I, I know you're fucking your intern. I know you're fucking this uh, Elvis guy. Mm. But they're also so unhappy. Yeah. 
So I don't know if it's a good thing they know because it's doing them zero good and it's not... Um, that sort of seems as the only place they have anything in common because <laughs> he is into birds, so she is into birds. <laughs> she is desperately unhappy and lonely and there without knowing anyone, so she adopts his hobby as her hobby and sort of sees a beauty in that. But the only place they have anything in common is when they're talking about having children mm. um, and, and, and uh, when they're talking about who they're screwing outside of the marriage. <laughs> what wonderful role models. <laughs> but did you just say that it worked well with the birds in this book uh, as opposed to in Franzen because she shows that birds are never just one thing, that mm -hmm. birds are treacherous creatures and not just free and like... Well, to be honest, I didn't think much about the bird metaphor in, in, in Franzen. I, it's very obvious in this one. But one thing that stopped me from understanding a lot of it was also my, my, my bad command of like English natural vocabulary, like English vocabulary about nature. These, the different birds that are, that are presented, mm. I don't know. That also got in the way of my, like my, okay. orno my ornithological knowledge is limited to knowing that it's ornithological. I'm glad it's not just a native a native speaker <laughs> problem. No, this is like and it's it's like she's deliberately showing like I've got all this knowledge about this thing. Like that's that's one of the that's like a, an implicit joke running throughout this. Like you may think that I'm comes away like feckless directionless person, but I fucking know birds. But yeah. Sometimes I think the whole environment issue took up too much of the book. It was not that interesting, at mm. least not to me. I don't care about the climate. But she <laughs> had uh, some good passages about the birds, and one of them is here on page 13. To Stephen, they were paragons of insatiable elemental appetite. I saw them differently. I imagined two ducks, loyal partners. When the hunters cornered them, would they turn to face them holding hands? Hell no. They would scatter like flies in as many directions mm. as they were ducks. The duck who got hit would look up with his last strength to make eye contact with his lifelong friend, who would shake her head as if to say, hush now, don't rat me out, but just because you're dying, love would conquer all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if there is a kind of point in this book, it is that, you know, that humans, at least in this book, are just as hungry and insatiable, but also immoral mm. uh, as, as the animals that they're observing, like the birds. Yeah, or maybe, like, or maybe we flatter ourselves with, abil with the ability to even be immoral. Like, yeah, maybe there's no moral. Yeah, maybe it's like we, we've, we've constructed a whole thing where we can let ourselves down, which, is, um, which are, uh, birds don't have to cope with. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is a great book. Yeah. I really, really do. I think it's the, one of the better books that we have uh, done podcasts about. I want to talk a little bit maybe about the, uh, the titular wall creeper mm -hmm. and its role in the opening sections of, of the book. Like when, when we have the, the car accident at the very beginning, as she is uh, lying next to the car, well, lying next to her vomit next to the car, all the wall creeper that the wall creeper says twee quite a lot throughout this scene. And um, as, they're, as they're trying to drive away from the, from the scene of the, of the car accident, because the car was fine, it was more the swerving that was the problem. Um, to make her not go to sleep, her, her partner wants to put on music and, well, wants to talk to her. And then she says, put on music, and the wall creeper protested, twee. And this is a very dry joke, which runs for the whole first section of the, uh, of the book. Um, this constant interjection, I think this is this kind of a neutral refrain space. And it sort of takes the space there where there would have been a kid, right? Like yeah. in the back seat of the car, yeah. what does the like they're fighting? What is the kid saying? 
the bird says twee. Yeah, oh, that's, it does yeah. that a lot. I had not thought of that as a... And then that adds extra significance to the... Um, in the first, I think we can say in the first act... In the first sentence. In the first, no, in the first, in the first act of the, of the, of the book, um, the war creeper meets a grisly end in the... Rudy. Yeah, I had a hard time interpreting, also maybe because I didn't feel like it, but <laughs> interpreting the, the, this, this wall creeper presence in their life, in their kitchen and living room, mm-hmm. and interjecting in like their conversations. And also, of course, Tiffany not really caring about it, but also caring about it a little bit, and Stephen caring a lot about it. Yeah. I think, actually, for me, the, the, the one barrier that kind of slowed me down while reading this book was all the stuff about birds. <laughs> because it turns out I am really hard to get interested in birds. It's, it's um, I think maybe if I, 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 again, I think this book would re- reward a second reading from me. It has not had that. <laughs> but I think that reflecting on it, I realized how important it was and how the ecology, I think the ecology, the ecology thing is really it is interesting, it just it takes a bit of time to work out why. Yeah, I, I never figured it out really why it was there, either uh, any, as anything else mm. differently different than as satire on Franzen. But the presence of the bird I saw as a replacement of her fetus, which yep. she loses at the time that mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. gets the wall creeper. And I'm not sure about the time, I know that they live in Bern for two years, I think, or yeah. three years. Um, but I think the presence of the wall creeper runs for as about as long as a pregnancy would because it mm. dies sort of yeah. quite early. Yeah. Um, not sure what to do with that knowledge. But <laughs> <laughs> it's there, and I noticed it. That was, had, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. I just also saw it as like a, a mirror of, of their relationship, like her and her husband, because they're sort of in this, like a, wall, a bird and another bird in a relationship together. Just like they're breeding and feeding, they're helping each other because you need to have babies and continue the circle of life kind of thing and that it's kind of similar to her and her husband's relationship because they're also just together because they kind of he didn't want to go to burn alone mm. she didn't like her job he wants to have a kid because it's on his life list she doesn't really care what <laughs> she like does. the anal sex exactly yeah yeah <laughs> and the fisting which is true these. anal sex and the fisting and a kid yeah it's a and mount everest and mount everest also, though, it must be noted here that that is also a satire of Franzen. But now we talk, sorry, a lot about Franzen, and this is also a satire on Franzen and blah, blah, blah. Does it have, it does have merits on its own. Yeah, 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 being, yeah. Uh, No, totally, totally. Well, obviously, I didn't get at all that it was a satire on Franzen, but I enjoyed it anyway. I had read that, but I never read his, uh, read his fiction, so I didn't know where or why or no, anything. No, but I mean, it, um, yeah, it certainly has merits beyond that, because it's, I mean, stylistically alone, it's, it's, it's really adventurous and and difficult to like that makes me want to work to like it. <laughs> it is a book that requires work, which yep, is interesting. Because as entertaining and fun and smart and quick as it is, it doesn't invite the reader like one step beyond the pages. Nothing. It gives you nothing. I would like, well, you were talking about the environmental aspect before, yeah. which you didn't feel gave a lot, but to me, not necessarily the technical parts, I didn't find those very interesting, like about the different birds and how they um, how they live, um, or for example. So what happens in the book is that Stephen becomes part of something called the Global River Alliance, which is basically him and his intern, uh, who he's screwing, uh, Bjerge, uh, who is a German with dreadlocks, 
and uh, they basically form this the Global River Alliance, which is about stopping dams from being built in rivers across the world, but especially in Germany. And the whole what I got out of this is that as as much as anything else. Our discussions about climate change today are moral discussions mm. about what is right and what is wrong. And I think Gio apparently doesn't care about climate, but, you know, hopefully she will not be alive when, <laughs> when, when, whenever catastrophe is. Cl- Maybe that is why. Climate fascist. She doesn't Maybe care about the climate. Why. Hopefully she'll be dead soon. But in a way, like when Gio said that, I thought that's wrong. So you see, there's a moral... There's a moral... Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And yeah. in this book... Yeah. In this book... Uh, there is no right and wrong. And so it takes the piss out of all these environmental mm. organizations mm. that work for specific mm. things because, yes, the dams destroy some ecosystems, systems, but they're better than, for yeah. example, let's say oil. And so all these, yeah. the eco-terrorism that comes out of it from Tiffany's side, which yeah. consists of breaking down the walls of a river to somehow flood an ancient forest area, just seem completely random, but not but just as random as any other act of like thought out environmental yeah. action or like moralizing thought like uh, yeah. a- action it's interesting like the uh, the the phrase that they, the the catchphrase that the um, global river alliance come up with which is uh, Wasserkraft nine danger it is obviously a, a reference to the nuclear power no thanks kind yes. of thing and I, it, it's repeated throughout the book and, and, and every time you read it it's funny Wasserkraft. Nein, danke. <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, so it's... I think it, it has an environmental concern in a kind of really existential way, where, like, if this fucks up, it doesn't matter how right I was about it. <laughs> if what fucks up? If the environment is completely fucked up, me having been right, and having had the badge that said I was right about the climate, and I was right about all of the ecosystems that we need to preserve... My rightness will not save me. Oh. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's the most interesting thing that comes out of the environmental discussion in the book is it's saying that the petty moralizing that works around this whole thing, like even on like you know well-intentioned people, mm. is not the same as actually doing something and or it, what has to be done. And it's just I find it. But maybe that's because I work a little bit in this on these environmental issues. I find it just so interesting how all these env- a lot of the characters in the book are concerned about the environment, but all their interests conflict. Even though their main goal for all of them is to preserve and to uh, and to preserve the mm. environment, also mm. in some way and in this way stop climate change. Yeah. But when someone floods a forest area the birders get angry because then the birds and then the people caring about trees get angry but the people who care about rivers are happy so you have all these these conflicting <laughs> yeah. things that just no one can yeah. ever be happy and i guess that's also like the um I, another thing to pick up on the whole uh, complexity issues that she was bringing up before is that the complexity of the ecosystem is that there is no ecosystem there's a bunch of different sequences ecosystems that fight each other and sometimes are better off than other times, and there was no homeostasis to go to. There's just like better or worse. <laughs> it ends up in a sort of uh, uh, question about utilitarianism, utilitarianism. Uh, where there are so many aspects to this climate thing. And mm. if you want to save one thing, something else has to go, and what is more important? Mm. And the, the climate, yeah. the environment isn't just this one thing. Yeah, and then in the juxtaposition with this, these really big questions about like generations with 
the interpersonal relationships of their of their affairs and marriages is something that I would I'm quite envious of the ability to do like in writing like you have this very big thing and that in ways I'm not quite able to clearly articulate become sort of like reflections of of the personal relationships that motivate all of their actual lives like do they like he becomes this eco guy but is it because it's is it because he's just into the intern <laughs> is it and then like is he is he doing it is he working harder at this because he's into the intern like is that is that what's going on like the motivations to be like again this is why it throws out the morality of the ecological questions because his morality is completely dubious in this like it's not his goodness at saving the environment is no and yeah. everyone is extremely self-serving they might like everyone might like the environment but it doesn't really unite them and i mean <laughs> <laughs> and i mean the global the global river alliance <laughs> like that the global river alliance is basically like i mean she just uh, portrays it as a sham you know it's these slogans and these posters but they're not actually they don't they don't have any content they're not doing any action but they get a lot of funding and i yeah. think that's also a nice sort of a nice comment on you know what is important today yeah uh for getting funds but not necessarily for making a new change that also makes me think back to like as we were discussing earlier like her thoughts are represent are represented in the book as language they're not represented as like they, they are lang- like word they're translated into words as words rather than like they're very cleverly constructed words and that's also the entire success of the environmental campaign. <laughs> yeah. A very cleverly constructed little sentence that gets all this funding, gets all this attention. And it's almost like she's, like from the beginning, she's kind of seen through this, this lie that there was something underneath this way of communicating to each other. And then she's like, she just goes all in on the communicative language. Like, fine, we'll just use all the symbols. Just have all the symbols. And back to the dialogues. I don't know what she's doing with that because all of her characters have these conversations with each other about things you would never say to other people. <laughs> and those conversations would never take place. But they're mm. great. I love them. Mm. They're a bit to me they're a bit like reading maybe David Foster Wallace or Don DeLillo where you really have to really pay attention to what is said in the dialogue. Yeah. Because you but with with Mostly with Don DeLillo and uh, partly with Foster Wallace, you understand kind of what's going on in the dialogue. But here you're just like, I have no idea how that is your reaction to this. Mm-hmm. How is that your reaction? Yeah, and that's cause and effect, which she also, uh, she talks about that at one point, And I don't remember why, but exactly oh, I, that yeah, cause no, and effect. I know effect, exactly what you're talking about. Um, oh, fuck. It's the thing I didn't get about her dialogues because something happens and then they have a sort of conversation about it, but in this really weird way yeah um, when he finds out and about it's illness. super snappy and s- so fucking strange um and yeah keep talking i'll find it <laughs> <laughs> but i think she says at one point sorry i have my mouth full of chocolate <laughs> that idea. there's no link between cause and effect yeah. for her um like how she didn't want to be pregnant yeah. the first time it happened because they were drunk and newlywed um and then she has a miscarriage, which tears her apart, and she's so unhappy, so there's no link between cause and effect. Okay. And well, it's the same with her dialogues and her situations. I said to Stephen at dinner that maybe we should try again to have a child. Our marriage had begun in the most daunting way imaginable. We had barely known each other, and then we had those accidents and that jarring disconnect between causes. 
empty-headed young people liking each other, wall creepers, and effects, pain, death. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know those. I wish I could, I wish I'd note it down because there's just a few times where I did like this guffaw. I really didn't. I was but, just but, like, but it was oh. like, it was like, ah! it was like that. I really didn't <laughs> have that. I, I literally had that with a smirk, like, okay, that doesn't really translate no, on the podcast. No, I mean, I struggled with this because like, I understood the jokes, like, this is a joke. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. I understood the irony and all the, like, it's, I, I don't know if the irony and the distance she wrote with kept me from engaging with it, like, you're being ironic, I'm gonna get, engage with this ironically. I don't know, but I I just didn't... All the things you guys have been saying, I yeah. can't relate to them. I didn't find it fa- that funny. Yeah. I thought it was fine. I didn't find it that smart. I thought it was... There's at one point where she's talking about Elvis, her first um, lover. I love him. He's pretty Elvis cool. Elvis is great. El- Elvis I hope he gets a spin-off in his own book. <laughs> Elvis from or is it Syria? Or is it Turkey? Uh, he's, he's, he's a Zizekian philosopher. <laughs> That's the oldest line in Christendom. Yeah. <laughs> funny. Um, but she she uh, she describes him. He was hopelessly in love with his own thoughts, watching them like a show on TV, zapping through the channels. That's how I felt about Nell Zink reading this book. Like, ooh, Nell Zink felt like she had a clever thought and she put it in here, and it was oh so provocative and. Dangerous. I don't think she wants to be provocative. I think she does. Like, I also heard her at Louisiana, and I was not... Yeah. I, I thought... Ugh, I don't know. I'll, Did you hear her for the reading or the for the time. interview? The, the, her second appearance. That was an interview, I think. Yeah. yeah. She is like her book. Yeah, yeah. She's she literally exactly is like yeah, her yeah, book. Yeah. And maybe it's also the expectations, because she's this mm. beautiful 50-year-old woman who looks, like, small and mild and fun... And of, she has her own opinions, and they're contrary to yours and what you expect from her. And she's snappy, mm. she's ironic, she's intelligent. But I think, yeah, it's a class of expectations as well. Yeah, I think so. But I, I totally agree that she's uh, intelligent and um, ironic and snappy and all that. But I, I just... It, it doesn't work for me in this uh, book. <laughs> Maybe that's what I can smell in the book. Like, oh, she's trying to piss people off and create controversy and sell books. And um inherently opposed to yeah I don't even see that she's trying to piss anyone off or like trying to be contrary with her like ooh it's an affair Mm. not at all to me she just like drops it casually everything I kind of like I think she's actually having her cake and eating it like I think she is she is defiantly dropping it in there (laughs) <laughs> like if you know what I mean yeah. I <laughs> I it. like like it's not enough to go like oh I'm having it like if she wrote the line like uh, I was having an affair and I didn't really care about that because uh, the marriage it was a whole you know these normative expectations are not what I am a part of that would be that'd be one thing but what she's doing is she's she has to just drop it in in that kind of yeah I yeah yeah, trying to mediate between these two positions is, uh, <laughs> You're is doing perhaps, well. a, perhaps a fool's errand. Um, is there anything? Does anyone want? I mean, this is a uh, a bugbear of the entire discussion of literature written by by women. But does anyone feel that the autobiographical nature of this is worth commenting on? No, and it doesn't matter. There is we it, go. Is it autobiographical at all? So, well, like she has, she has said that it is a work of 
autobiography in impenetrable code, I think. That's but that doesn't perfect. matter. I mean, that okay, so that's where she got her inspiration. I don't care about that. And I don't care about mm -hmm. what she has experienced and what she hasn't and where she draws from. Fair enough. Yep. But sorry. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Enthusiastic nods. No, I, that's the, that is also the official policy of our <laughs> also, then we return to the question that we had in I Love Dick of how women always yeah. write from their own experiences because they're not able to do anything else than just write their own marriages out because that's all they ever have mm. uh, to write about. But she's got way more than marriages here. She's blowing up a dam. Yeah, but maybe she's done that in real life. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I was enjoying the picture of Nelsink basically like throwing all these stones into the river oh, yeah. and like lodging with this creepy preacher mm. who just feeds her yeah. and not making any money. I don't know. I felt that the... I could see that the, 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 the autobiographical aspects of it in the, in the places that she was in mm. and also in the randomness of what she's done because she's really done some random things in her life and so has Tiffany. Mm. But in a way, I just felt it kind of added to the whole thing. I saw the kind of like frustrated intelligence of the narrator, like someone with like a, a, a really sharp mind with, with just nowhere nowhere in the whole social arrangement does it seem like that's the place for, to use that resource. Yeah. To me, she shows great literary merits. Yeah. Uh, and I don't care if she has experienced it or not. Yeah. And I think that this is the best of her three so far published books. By came, far the best. And they came out in rapid succession. Well, she's been writing her whole life. Yeah, yeah. But well, that, that explains why. Though, just never published. Apparently, yeah. I mean, it is. May I just add one? Yeah, thing please thing? do. I mean, we do, we do, and oh, so many men, so many men in Denmark do just love Karlo Knausko. Just like you're just telling me the truth about what it is to be a man. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and, and apparently Sarah Omni, who's, yes. who's hand rising Rises. again, it does not translate. Not on. because he's telling me the truth about what it is to be a man, <laughs> but I. I'm a fan. <laughs> I haven't read him, but it's just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm sure. So it's not to say it doesn't have literary quality, but it's just received exactly yeah. this question. Is it bi autobiographical? And with women and men, it's just received so differently. No, I 100% yeah. agree. But I don't think that takes away from... There's, there's been articles on it. And like I think C.O. Husbitt has mm. written on about it as well. Um, that his work... If a woman, if it had been Mrs. Knausko, I think the article was, it wouldn't have been published. But yeah, yeah no, agree. Yeah, but like, uh, no, but I mean, all the all respect to Knausko in many ways. It's just so interesting to see the different receptions yeah. of the things. Yeah, kind of like a polite nod to Knausko from <laughs> me. But that's, like, <laughs> like, I see what I see. You you you've done the thing, and it's definitely the thing that you said you were going to do. I'm not going to read all of it. Consistent. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this, this has been a wide-ranging and uh, unruly conversation, which I think reflects the book in many, many ways. Beautiful experience. Well, like, also, <laughs> like, I mean, I think if there'd be far more, like, it'd be, it'd be more snappily structured if uh, Nelsink had written the conversation. Um, so I think we should just close off here by uh, going around and asking if you'd recommend this book to people. I'll start with... Uh, Shivana Alessandro, whose yes. opinion is ambiguous. <laughs> Shivana Alessandro wants to recommend this book to everyone. She does. Read it. Please read it. Come down to iBooks and talk about it with me. Or, or buy it first. Buy, buy it with <laughs> us, yes. Yeah. I mean...
I would recommend it very much. I'm just not sure if it needs a certain audience. I don't think I would recommend it, for example, to my dad, even though he's the person who needs it the most. But I don't think he would get it. Yeah, it's um, a real, uh, real love deficit there. Well, <laughs> I would just read it, come to art books, buy it, read it, come down and discuss it with Gio. Yes. I will watch because it'll be a great. And uh, Sarah? I would um, uh, neither recommend or not recommend it. I would neither. If someone asked you where it was, you'd point it to... You'd I'd point, point in that direction and said I read it. It was, it was an afternoon. Stuff happened. <laughs> I mean, you are welcome to read it. I, I didn't hate it. <laughs> it's a book. Can't say anything against that description. <laughs> um, I would, um, I'm actually recommending it to myself to read it again, um, even though the ostensible purpose of me reading the book is now past. No, we'll just make a second one. Next month, yeah. Nelson and the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, We've just got warmed up. Has anyone's opinions changed? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, I think it's rich. I think it's doing something new. I think I think I will read the rest of her oeuvre, even though... Don't. I, I'm, <laughs> now. Cheers. 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 Woo! Thanks for listening to the Arc Audio Book Club. Next month, we'll be back here discussing Deborah Smith's award-winning translation of Hang Kang's beautiful and deeply disturbing novel, The Vegetarian. Stay tuned.